Welcome to Podcast 130. I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers and I'm sat on the Wiggly sofa in Lower Blakemere Farm in Herefordshire, England. And with me today on the sofa too is... A Richard from <laughs> Wiggly Wigglers nonetheless. And Farmer Phil. Except he sat on the other sofa. So well, this he, is the wiggly sofa. Of Farmer course. Phil usually smells, so he has his own <laughs> sofa. <laughs> We've got lots coming up in this week's show. We're about to pot up the salad leaves. We've got feedback from our article on Rothamsted. We've got Facebook action on dishwater. We're going to hear from the Hay Festival Garden. We have a moment where Phil's been to the Climate Change Conference. I've got some amazing news about India. And that's about it, I think. Excellent. First of all, thank you so much to everybody for listening. And the thing is, you duly did react to our request for feedback on iTunes and you've given us two reviews so I'm going to ask Farmer Phil to read out the first one walk over here Farmer Phil are they good reviews I've not seen it's these from yet. Sea Carrot right. five star reviews so the first review five we'll have to stars find out we, we expect nothing less <laughs> from Sea Carrot what's a Sea Carrot anyway wonderful insight into country life covering all issues and concerns affecting country life today Join Farmer Phil, the brawn. Oh, Oh, God. Heather, the beauty. (laughs) Love you, sea carrot, love you. Oh, he gets Why are you laughing, Michael? (laughs) And Richard. Oh, Richard's got his hands in his head in his hands. Richard, aka Ricardo, the other one. (laughs) (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. On the Wiggly Sofa every week for topical discussions and interviews. Highly recommended. Seek out the Archive podcast. Oh dear, the computer's gone blank. Seek out the Archive podcast as well. Smiley with a wink, Ricardo. Don't know what that means. So thank you, Seek out, for that. That was brilliant. Now I think Ricardo's got one to read out from a Spice Girl. Oh, okay. A Spice Girl. God, if only, eh? There we go. Oh, it could be Melanie B. Anyway, it says Rural Tastic. It's a milker. And this is good. So this means that someone that uh, must have listened to several podcasts if mm. she's listened that far back. Is it uh, a five star? Well, it is a five star nonetheless. And it says, I adore this podcast. As a country girl now living in a town, it's a great way to keep in touch with rural affairs, conservation and green gardening. And it helps that it's done in a warm, light-hearted and entertaining way. In brackets, hedgerow, forward slash cat, forward slash organic rose, notwithstanding, <laughs> exclamation mark, bracket, it feels almost as if you're curled up on the wiggly sofa with Hev, Phil, Ricardo and their assorted human and animal guests. Excellent. And it also says, episode 71, live coverage of a carving. This is the one you and I did, wasn't it? You were yeah, there, yeah, Rich, and you right. did get over-emotional as I Well, it was a kind of emotional time. It's a particular favourite of Melanie's, by all accounts, and she says it's educational but also very emotionally engaging and well worth looking up in the archives. So there you are, listener, episode 71. And I, I must admit, that was a great episode, one that I thoroughly enjoyed doing, certainly. So, dear listener, episode 71 is what you really, really want. <laughs> Get it? Very Spice good. Girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mel B. Oh. There you are. Your, your ego is a massage, so thank you very much for that. Not only is it brilliant to hear from you, and we don't mind some negative feedback, maybe not on the iTunes review, but putting us an iTunes review up 
is brilliant because I think it helps us keep that little icon thing on our category page. And that's essential to get new listeners. So if you enjoy the show, if you could be bothered to go and do that, that yeah. would be just a jolly job. Actually, it's a nice thing to do, you know. I, I, I think people perhaps underestimated the amount of appreciation on our part from oh, doing that simple thing. We, I love it if mm. I go to iTunes and see there's a new review because mm. often you don't see the review, you just see that there is one for a day or so and you're thinking, oh, what will it be like? The and I can't wait if it's something mm. funny. Especially about you, Rich. That's <laughs> right. No, I know. I know that. You don't have to tell me that. Now then, what I want to know, Phil, is your feedback from the Rossumstead article. Yeah, very briefly. You'll remember we, I did a little bit on visiting Rossumstead Research Station down in Hertfordshire and notably on their long-term grassland experiment, Park Grass. And I received this email from Christine. It says, hello, I was listening to your fantastic podcast today, number 128, and was very interested in Farmer Phil's report on the 150-year research on grasses in permanent pasture. Phil did not say how the trial plot did with no fertiliser. I have a small holding and do everything as organically as possible, which means my pasture does not get any artificial fertiliser. Please can you let me know what the outcome of the research was for no fertiliser versus part or fully fertilised with lime, etc. Many thanks, Christine. I replied to Christine with, it's a very complicated experiment, there are a lot of plots involved, but essentially, as a rule of thumb, the plots that received no fertiliser and no lime had the biggest biodiversity, they'd got the biggest range of plants, and the plot that had no lime and no fertiliser was at a pH of about 5. Now, when you start to apply fertiliser, that effectively, among other things, has an effect of acidifying the soil so that in the plots that had fertiliser, the unlimed plot got down as low as 3.6 pH. You know, you're very nearly into the realms of being an acid bog so that the biodiversity got down to single-figure species in those plots. But if you limed the plots and put fertiliser on, the compromise wasn't as bad so that you would have between half and two-thirds the number of species that you had in the unfertilised and unlimed plots, if that makes sense. So roughly did, it, spe- did it make any difference if the fertiliser was <coughs> the bought and bagged stuff or the proper worm cast stuff? Um, not a great deal, because what it, it makes some difference in as much that the amounts that you apply with bagged stuff would tend to be higher. Also, in this experiment, the fertilisers are old-fashioned. They're not the ones that we tend to use today. They've stuck with the old-fashioned fertilisers so that they're using ammonium sulphate instead of ammonium nitrate, which we use for nitrogen applications. And the reason they've done that is to keep all of the information relevant to each other. If you change the fertiliser, it becomes irrelevant. But the effect is very much the same. And they've done it at different rates. And obviously, if you put more fertiliser on, you need more lime. The the upshot, as far as Christine is concerned, is that her pasture, depending on what the natural lime status of it is, will probably have a higher biodiversity than grass that's fertilised. And if you're going to fertilise grass, put some lime on it as well to keep the pH up to maintain the best compromise that you can. Any view on that, Rich? Uh, No. Excellent. (laughs) Uh, Now, I had the opportunity to meet up with Graham Wynne, who's the head of the RSPB last week, And we asked him if farming could do anything at all to increase the species of the birds, what would it be? What was on his wish list? And he said there's two absolutely key things. And I thought he was going to say 
go organic, plant loads of hedges or something like that. But actually, RSPB, although they think organic is important, they don't think it can feed the world. But his point, just to get back to this, was the two things on his wish list. First of all, go back to using hay instead of silage. And second of all, plant in the spring instead of the winter. Got any comments on that, Phil? Don't say no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it, it, I was interested in his thoughts, and, and I can see entirely why the silage issue causes birds such a problem, because by growing hay, you tend to let all the species go to seed, so you have better biodiversity and you have more food about, and also you're not disturbing the grass field at a time right when the birds are nesting, so that normally silage would be, first cut would be taken now, right at the beginning of May, and obviously that can be devastating to any birds that are nesting in the field, you know, it's total disruption. If the field is grazed now, that's of very little consequence to a lot of them, so that made complete sense. I was intrigued by the idea that spring planting had such a radical effect, and I can only assume it's because it gives more of a food source for the birds over winter on the stubbles than a winter-planted crop does. But from a a ground-nesting bird's point of view, the lack of disturbance in the spring would be a positive. So perhaps not as clear, but I suppose it probably, if it is the food source in the winter, it demonstrates the benefit of having areas of habitat which are not planted at all or not cropped at all that can provide them with some food source other than the cropped area. So I suppose it comes back to the thing that, that mixed farming is probably the best compromise. See, I was thinking about the garden, Rich. Yeah. And making silage is mowing your lawn, isn't it, really? Yeah, I guess so. Mm. Well, you know, that's what you do. Yeah, similar things, yeah. They're just, uh, it's, they support very little life indeed, yeah. So the wildflower meadow, where you only strim it in the autumn... Yeah. So that's completely purpose. related, isn't well, it? Well, it is. I mean, a wildflower meadow is, is really... All you're doing is, is replicating a, a natural hay meadow. You know, I mean, when, when you grow a, a, what hay meadows would and should and, and are like, some of the, the still around, uh, it's just a whole multitude of different species of grasses and flowers. And all you're doing is replicating that in your garden by either seeding or planting different species of plug plants and so on and so forth. And then you just do exactly the same. As a gardener, of course, you have the luxury of perhaps leaving it a bit longer before you cut it. Farmers tend to need to cut hay around about July time, which in most instances is is long enough for most invertebrates to achieve their life cycles in the sense that most of the larvae can get down in amongst the roots and, uh, you know, and and achieve their ambitions in terms of uh, metamorphosizing, you know, and so on and so forth. So when the farmer came up with the idea of making silage, why did he do that? You know, would he have known that that would wipe out a lot of species? And the same with the gardener. I don't know when we came up with mowing that lawn all the time. But the same issues are there for the gardener and the farmer. The two issues that led to silage were yield of grass and weather, which are related. A traditional unfertilised hay crop would not have had a vast quantity of material. You mow it down, you can dry it in the sun quite easily. With a modern high-yielding grass with fertiliser, you've got a huge amount of material which is too thick to dry out quickly to hay, so therefore is exposed to the weather. Silage gives farmers a way of locking the nutrients into a a bale or a clamp reasonably reliably. I don't suspect that in the time that when people invented silage they weren't thinking much about biodiversity or anything else. They wanted high-yielding grasses and they wanted high-yielding dairy cows. Mm. The rules may be changing for a number of reasons. I mean, we saw a couple at the Carbon Conference yesterday. Well, it turns out that when cows perp, methane is produced, Mm. but much worse than that, 
when cows belch, much more methane is produced. And there was much discussion about what does make the cow belch. And silage did come up Mm. on the list. Have you tried any EM in your food stuffs yet with your cows? No, and that's an interesting thing. I mean, the whole relationship between how you feed a cow, which is ruminant, obviously, Mm. and what the effect is on, for example, the methane it produces and obviously how much milk or (coughs) meat it produces, it's a complicated (coughs) relationship but I suspect it's one that's likely to change. We had quite a lot of discussion yesterday at this carbon conference that cows obviously produce greenhouse gases and other ways of reducing or mitigating them that don't impinge too much on the productiveness of the cow. I suspect, although I've got no evidence to prove it, that things like Bokashi or EM can have a beneficial effect. I'm sure they they must have. I mean, oddly, I I did this composting course yesterday and I was talking about diatomaceous earth, which has lots of different uh, beneficial applications, but one of which I did say, I mean, it's not, we don't sell it for human consumption, but I did say that, in fact, what you could do with diatomaceous earth, you know, you could put it on your food and it might help improve your constitution. And ding, said, ding, ding! Warning, dear listener, do not try this at home. Yeah, like, Health and safety, so, wiggly, wiggly. The woman, she said, uh, what, so what, what else could it do? I said, well, if you've got irritable bowel syndrome, then it'd probably be a great... Uh, <laughs> well, of course, that... that ding, 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 reducing that. You're, you're not wrong, because <laughs> traditionally... Um, products such as kaolin, which is a, a very refined clay, mm. have been used for just that, for slowing the bowel movements down, so that if you've got a, an animal that's scouring, you can help to stop it scouring. Mm. And, and, I had I mean, that in Kenya. <laughs> scouring? I did, but I had kaolin too. Okay, I see, I see. Yeah, <laughs> Moving yeah, on. For different reasons altogether. But I, I mean, I'm just drawing up comparisons between those two things. I mean, ultimately they work in slightly different ways, but the EM factor, I mean, it's just like probiotics, really. I mean, people take probiotics, if, again, if they've got uh, IBS, for instance, you know, for all intents and purposes, you could quite easily sprinkle Bokashi on your, uh, on your Kellogg's. Do you want to do your ding, ding, ding thing again? Ding, ding, ding! <laughs> Uh, so, Don't do that. Farmer uh, Phil and, uh, made it in a shed. I have, I have done it. I've done it myself just to try it, you know, to see if it's any good. There's absolutely no problem at all. I, I mean, suppose I, you're going to claim now, are you, off Wiggly I mean, Wigglers? I, I tend not to uh, to fart uh, consistently, so I, I've never really found it. There wasn't much purpose taking my vacation or my, my Weetabix. But, but, you know, for, as far as cows are concerned, then it would settle things out quite nicely. I, I think there's potential. As far as our cows are concerned, we don't feed them silage. So but you that, do make silage at the other place, I do you? make silage, but that's... But not a, here. No, but the reason for that is that it's not to waste the grass. So that instead of turning the cattle onto grass, which is up to their knees, which they'll tread most of it into the ground, I make a little bit of silage because that area of grass is surplus to me, effectively, and I make the silage and I actually sell it. Why don't you let them out before? Well, because they're in another field. It's oh. because, because oh, of the I see. extensive... It's like you run a beans. They all come at once. A bit like that, yeah. And it, it makes better use of the grass to make a little bit of silage to, as a cash crop. And then later on we make hay, which is the majority cash crop, and that allows us to have a lot of area to the cattle. So they've got plenty of area to go at, and then we feed them in the winter on our grass seed straw, which is a residue, which is a much higher dry matter than silage. Now, I think that that keeps their guts working better. And it's purely subjective, but in round figures, and and, uh, people who know a lot more about this than I do sort of tend to agree, if the cow muck stinks, then the likelihood is that they're producing more methane than a cow that its muck doesn't stink. Now, I know the methane comes from the front end, but it suggests that it's digesting the food better and the gut is working better on the higher dry matter 
we need Gillian McKeith to come and dissect a cow poop because she knows all about it and she can work out your digestive yeah. you know people that eat too many burgers she can tell it yeah, I, hope, right. I hope she wouldn't use the same criteria as I've seen her using on hum- human poo because right. she'd be none too impressed with one of my cow's offerings dear listener if your name is Gillian McKeith or you know Gillian McKeith would you please invite her to the wiggly sofa where we have a dollop of poop waiting for her <laughs> now listen we have to move on Julie Bristow on Facebook says story dishwater I've just bought a siphon using my Facebook discount code at the very last minute that was congratulations to a few people on our 500th member so I did a little deal so if you'd like to join Facebook do that Uh, anyway she plans to drain the water from washing vegetables into water butts because she has an upstairs kitchen I just wondered if we could use the dishwater too, she says. We use Ecova washing up liquid, but will all the foodie gunk in the water just ferment and smell horrible? Mm. The water butts are on the patio, so we wouldn't really be able to get away from the smell. And then Megan Lynch also contributes and says, when I use dishwater in the garden, I use it as soon as it's cooled. Just the same way it would if you left it standing in your kitchen, it will eventually stink up the joint. Megan's bang on the mark there. That's exactly what would happen if you if you stored it. It would stink. I mean, this is why poorly um, maintained drains that are just subjected to constant dishwater and all the proteins and phosphates and all sorts of hideous bits and bobs that washing up liquid contains. You know, from your sauces and your your bacon rind and your food fats and all that kind of stuff. Oof. You know, it all. If you, it's a lovely you, show this week, it. isn't it? Don't store it. I mean, it, it, you can use it on the garden. You know, especially if you're using things like Ecova, absolutely no problem at all. And then all the microflora and flora in this soil will deal um, with all the proteins, etc. Won't your lettuces taste of soap? No, it doesn't quite work like that. No, it dissipates. All that kind of stuff dissipates quite quickly. Just just a a quick thing. Soap is a well-known antidote or deterrent for aphids so that you will get the benefit of using soapy water on your beans, peas, things like that that get aphids. So that was the first thing. Just to say, I wouldn't recommend putting dishwater directly onto the foliage of plants. Row on, come on, no, bring no, it no, back. No, 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 it's not that. Because Phil's right, right. Well, Phil's, Phil's right in when he, what he says is that, that um, soapy water is quite a good way of, um, of reducing aphid infestations on, on broad beans and so on and so forth because it kind of coats their skins and uh, makes it difficult for them to, to breathe. But dirty dishwater is not something that most plants appreciate on their leaves. So actually, if you're going to put your dishwater onto your garden, make sure you don't pour it on your plants, just pour it on the soil around the, the base of the plant. That's sort of related to the second part of my question, which right. was a question for you, was that Julie wanted to use her vegetable washings and save that water. Now, is there a risk of transferring diseases? You know, if you've got um, <coughs> scab or whatever on a potato and you wash it and scrub it and then put it back on your new crop of potatoes, is there a risk of propagating disease that way by doing that? It's generally unlikely. You probably wouldn't consider washing a potato that was diseased to the extent that you know you'd, we would want to eat it maybe i don't know but there is that possibility definitely i mean you could quite easily i mean blight is a perisher last summer you know we had such bad problems with blighting with mm. potato blights especially and it kind of affected everything all the tomatoes not not just the potatoes I mean, most, so most that would be you could in theory spread that quite easily by washing infected potatoes and then putting that again the, the wash water onto your plants. particularly potatoes i mean we would very rarely eat a completely unblemished potato you know mm. they've usually got one or two skin issues i'm mm. not talking about them being rotten mm. but obviously 
the thinking is that you ought to think about it. If you put that water back onto an area of the garden, put it on an area that has nothing to do with potatoes. Yeah. Right, stop. We've got to pot up my plants because that's the important thing. I've had three lots of salad leaves so far. (coughs) I I thought a rabbit had been round them myself. I snipped them. Is that all right, Rich? I wondered what happened to them. I was looking at them thinking, they've been nibbled by something. I thought, no, they can't have been nibbled. The dogs wouldn't have done that. The, the, uh, the cats well, they, got a They look as if Bugs Bunny's been round. Yeah, 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 no. The thing was that yeah. Monty and I were hungry, so we had a little bit of salmon, and yeah. then we got a cucumber, but it wasn't enough. Right. So we that's started a completely brilliant them. idea, you know. Yeah. And actually, because you t- what you tend to find with lettuces is when you get when you sow <clears throat> sow seeds, invariably they all come, you know, which is exactly what's happened here. Um, and so you'll end up with billions of seedlings that you don't want. You're not going to have room for these, even if you planted up every single raised bed in the weekly garden. There's, there's, there wouldn't be enough room for all these. So ultimately, it much, makes much more sense to rather than chuck them away to eat them. Yeah, and right. they really taste it like this. These little chaps, lovely. Well, you need quite a few, obviously, to fill your sandwich. But ultimately, oh, we had three. Why not? We've had had so far three big salad bowls of leaves. Right. Okay. What did you cut them off with? Um, I cut them off with my Oppenel knife. Any good? Yeah, absolutely. Makes perfect sense. Just went, did you oil your knife blade out? I see the sprouts aren't doing quite as well. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> OK, Rich, over to you. Oh, OK, because, potting um, up. Well, we just, we'll do one quickly here. I mean, it's very straightforward, actually. I mean, I've got, the, um, I've got a bit of a... I spoke to this person the other day... Um, from uh, Vital Earth, actually, because we're thinking of doing some new interesting products for next year. But anyway, that's besides the point. What I'm going to do is split this bag. This is... Uh, Potting compost. I'm trying to find my little knife on this, this is, little thing. Picture the scene, dear listener. It's a beautiful room that we're in, really. You know, we're surrounded by my wedding photos, the piano over there, a little tinkle on the piano we'd so, like to give Phil. This is a number two and, compost. Um, you know, there's rather, a, than a, rather than number one compost that we started with. I am a renowned a lovely, pianist. Lovely Tinkling, I, don't, I put the electric guitar on the table so uh, yeah. Phil can't sit down and so play his, and his masterpiece. The compost is coming out. Right, okay, now I've got, what I've done is uh, we've got these lovely little terracotta pots. There's all sorts of uh, inverts in here. Um, a whole oh. world of wood lice in it, so I won't, I won't use that for us. So you've got yeah, wood lice in your... And some interesting antique, spiders. The antique table over there. Of which I don't know what they're called. You know, when I was, uh, when I was at university way back when, I, I did a, a study on spiders, and, but the only ones I can remember their names are the Tegenaria domestica, you know, and, and Suave, and those Tegis, those big suckers that run across the floor. Horaces. In the bath. You're watching the television or something, you've got one of those... Brought, so yeah. Yeah, Tegis, but, um, and, uh, and Fulcus phalangeoids, you know those ones that look like harvestmen that sit up in the corners of rooms and if you go too near them they start shaking and spiralling you know <laughs> out, like, almost out of control focus but they're a great spider because they predate on uh, on lots of other spiders so if you've got a big old phalangeoids knocking around in your house worth keeping it because he'll eat all the other spiders in the house. i was always brought up oh. it was unlucky to hurt a spider yeah and that he shouldn't and no. they're all called horace except for daddy Longlegs. It is definitely unlucky to hurt spiders. It's spiders. bad karma, you know. The thing is, remember, darlings, that this is a listening podcast. So now you have filled the pot up. Would you like to describe what you? Oh, okay. Do? So I put uh, so I put some of our genie number two. So this is a slightly larger grade uh, compost, really, than the, the seed compost that we started with. I brought this paper potter with me purely because I mentioned it in last time we did this. And this is That's a neat not little a paper thing. Paper potter. A uh, paper potter. Tamper. Pot tamper. Rather sorry. Right. Paper potter. It's a lovely little thing. But if you were putting Seeds how much here. is that, Rich? You know, you, I've got no idea. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
<laughs> you, can put, you can put that in there, and, and you know that's oh. really so that's a neat little thing. And so I quite like these tidy little gizzies because that would last. Not only does it look great, but it would last forever as long as you look after. I know you're so normally that's, that's really, lovely. But yeah, no, so, but I'm going to abuse that now anyway, oh. and I'm going to so I'm just going to push it down my hands a little bit more to firm it up, make a little scraping there, and then I'm going to carefully select a uh, lettuce plant that hasn't been chopped with a little hev scissors <laughs> and pop it in there in the pot. So it's really that simple. So I just scooped it out of the seed tray with my... How do you know you haven't broken the roots Now, compost then? inundated fingernails. Well, you know, lettuces, like uh, a lot of the brassicas as well, when they're little tiny guys like this, they can tolerate quite a lot of abuse of the root. Also, you, brought, you, you were quite careful to bring a dollop of compost round its roots. That's oh, a good, yeah. that's a sensible thing to do. Uh, it's not necessary because sometimes, you know, when you plant these things, you plant them so thickly that you're quite literally pulling them apart from one another. Right. So the roots can often be completely naked. But one of the most important things is to get the root and don't let it dry out. Definitely don't let it dry out. Get it straight into that nice, moist compost straight away. And then we'll, we won't water it today in the lounge. But, we'll, but you know, we can, <laughs> we can water that outside. And you can have two or threes now. These in the windowsill. And these guys will grow. So I mean, really, for all intents and purposes, there's no reason why we can't leave these in here. And then you can just carry on snipping away at those. Oh, great! That's nice to see, I it? like that. Yeah, and then we'll just pop two of these juicier ones in the uh, in the windowsill as well. And then you can just keep pruning these, take the leaves from the outside. Take I mean, the leaves really, from the outside. Take the leaves from the outside generally, because these are cut and come again. So just kind of take the leaves from the outside. You can take some of the some of the juicy inside ones, but the, because the growth comes from the core and the centre of the plant most of the time, you don't want to keep pinching out the, the centre of it. Now, Colin, a friend of ours, who is also a painter and decorator, who happens to be in the back kitchen at the moment doing a little spot of tiling came and looked at these salad plants and he said you'll want to put those outside in the day and then bring them in at night uh, is that right uh, is it good or is it bad I, I think you probably could do that I and mean, if it's a nice warm day it's probably a good idea to do that because but in I'll fact forget, this time Rich. of year it's warm but I, well I just don't bother her I wouldn't bother at the moment just don't no. do it because you know what we're trying to do is, is, is make a nice easy uh, have <laughs> A popping out harvesting salad leaves episode we don't want to uh, yeah. did you put them in the greenhouse Rich well, yeah you know. yeah they go great guns in a greenhouse I mean really that would be the, probably the best place to put these because it is still very cold at night you know within a couple of three degrees of freezing the last few nights I know I know it's a right fiddle as well because I've got three there's three chunky goslings of mine you know they're getting big, bigger and bigger all the time but they're not quite feathered up yet so I keep having to put them out in the little chicken arc that I made and bring them back <laughs> in at night and they don't like it at all <laughs> and also they, they poo everywhere so every time you pick them up you get this jet of gosling gosh crap. we'll have to call this the poo <laughs> I wanted to warm up nights as well <laughs> now we've got two tiny yeah. little items so really quickly Phil what was your argument with yesterday's carbon conference which uh, was put on by the Nuffield we went to Stoneley on a bus and heard all about carbon and how that how farming could make a difference but you had a bit of a run-in. I did have a bit of a run-in, as I do. Um, basically, the conference yesterday was concerned with the greenhouse gases that the actions of farming produce and how we might reduce them and how we might measure our carbon footprint effectively and what we might do about it. But then I discovered that I'm allowed to feed biomass to my boiler and credit myself with the carbon that is sequestrated from the atmosphere in growing the biomass. But if I feed my cow biomass, I'm not allowed to credit myself with the carbon that is sequestrated in growing the cow fuel for the cow. And yet the cow is then slated for producing methane, which is a a highly bad news greenhouse gas. And so my argument was basically 
let's measure the situation accurately and correctly without any political interference, which is the, the whole reason for, for not allowing the farmer to take credit for the carbon locked up in his crops. Yeah. And then if we want to change the political scene after the event, do it afterwards. But let's have the accurate figures, because basically it seemed fairly obvious that the main problem with farming and energy and carbon comes back to fertiliser. Now, By far and away the biggest chunk. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. i tell you what, Phil, I'm not going to keep us, because this is something that I don't want to cram into the ebbing moments of, our, uh, of uh, this, this week's episode of our amazing podcast. I read this book, Famine in the West, right? This is a book written by John Gossip, who I interviewed, Skype interview the other day. i tell you what, this book is absolutely great. I read it on the train down to London the other day when I went down to do a, a gig in Westminster. And this is, uh, I mean, what I can do is I'm going to recommend this to anybody. It definitely uh, is going to be a, a future Wiggly product. But it talks all about the, well, the, the, the kind of imminent disasters on the horizon, really, in terms of, you know, well, it talks all about peak oil um, and uh, carbon emissions off the back of uh, artificial fertiliser production, all that kind of stuff. But I'll talk a little bit more about it next week. Did it depress you? No, it didn't depress me because it's written by a normal man in normal <laughs> terms. Normal man. And it's very understandable and you can appreciate the sentiment entirely. OK, now, just to go back to that carbon conference, you can download the reports, I believe, if you go to www.thecarbonfootprintofbritishagriculture.co.uk. Not the snappiest of titles, but that's the website. Just before we go, you've got to see Anne Somerset Miles' article in Organic Gardening, which is wonderful because by it, Michael has designed for us the most glorious, glorious advert. And just, just before we go, this is what happened to me last Sunday. I had an email, and you know those Nigerian emails that say, you've got £50,000 billion to claim if you do this, just send us 20 quid. Yeah. I sort of imagined it was that because it was from a chap called Klaus Bonk and it said that the former Prime Minister of Sweden, Dr Ola Olsten, had invited me to speak at a climate change conference in India. And it all sounded so unlikely that I just couldn't quite believe it. So I emailed back straight away to say, are you real? Uh, towards that effect. And are you having a laugh? Are you having a laugh? <laughs> and he emailed back to say he was real and he would like me to speak. And so uh, I've got the opportunity to go to India on the 30th of May and take part in the Global Convention on Climate Change, delivering a holistic response to climate change. And they want case studies of business that are communicating about climate change and all that stuff. So isn't that amazing? But she's missed a critical part of the email. I'm just going to get that back. And so I sent him through my profile and he emailed back to say, would you please bring Farmer Phil? (laughs) (laughs) Really? Can you believe it? And apparently, (laughs) I am going as well. Are you going to go for it? Is it going to be like a Gorringe holiday? Yeah, we go for the weekend, I expect. Go for the weekend? (laughs) I think you're flying there. You should go for longer, shouldn't you? Definitely. But there is is scope, apparently, that the Dalai Lama is going to be there. No, he is. The Dalai Lama is speaking to the Notwithstanding the few issues he's got at home, but I gather that he's... And um, Giscard d'Estaing. Cool. Cool. And so, until next week, please... Pop off to iTunes, do that review. If you want to come to our Facebook group, you'd be more than welcome. We've got 580 members, but we can squeeze in 
just one more and that's for you so buy from us rich is off to hay festival to sort out sight lines for our garden my goodness me yeah <laughs> so it's buy from me on the wiggly sofa buy from me and it's buy from me go rich that's a good one isn't it episode 71 and I, I must admit that was a great episode one I thoroughly enjoyed doing certainly well you now are. your egos are massaged why don't you say episode 71 it's what you really really want why <laughs> oh, oh, a spice girl Oh, very oh good, maybe yeah, I should yeah. say that. Keep up, Rich. Yes, I should say that. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, golly, yeah, no. And what's happened to you? My brain doesn't work like that. I wish it did. Well done.